Good morning. It is good to be here. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you guys. A great job, uh, as always. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Scott LeGraff. I serve on the elder board here. I also teach at the university, which is where? Over there, right? <laughs> the university over there. I'm a music teacher over there. And it's a, it's a great privilege to get to uh, lead us into studying God's word here this morning. Uh, we're beginning our Advent series. So Advent is a traditional time within the church, right, historically focused on Israel's wait for the coming Messiah. And uh, generally, it's the, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and it kind of culminates in Christmas. We're going to do things a little untraditionally in this traditional uh, season. We're going to look at a couple very traditional texts this week and next week. Today will be in Isaiah chapter 9, if you want to start finding that right now. And then next week will be in Isaiah chapter 7, two very, very famous, famous, is that, is that the right word to talk about the Bible? Two very, very well-known Christmas texts. And then after that, we're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 8, a much lesser-known uh, Advent text, Second Peter, uh, and then we're going to close out this series in Revelation chapter 21. So the second part of the series, after Christmas, we're really going to focus on Christ's second Advent, right? So Advent means the arrival, right? So he's arrived one time. That's why we have these trees up here. That's why we celebrate this season but we, we have this expectation, this, this hope, this sure hope that he will arrive again, that he will return again. That's the second advent. So we will focus on that after Christmas. <clears throat> I am a fan of Christmas lights. Is anyone else a fan of Christmas lights? We used to drive around when I was a kid. We would drive around and, and look at all the lights. It was always so beautiful. I'm from the north, so if, if we were lucky, there would be snow. And uh, we drive around, you know, in, the, in the, the darker evenings, the days have gotten so short, and look at Christmas lights. And, and I loved it. I still love it. And it's something I try to do with my family, uh, when our, especially when our kids were younger. But even now, we try to do it. But our kids get car sick. And it's a much less enjoyable experience if you're feeling like at any moment your child might vomit in the back seat. And uh, so we don't do it as much. Kim and I will still do it sometimes, drive around and really enjoy the lights and, and the starkness of those, the beauty of those lights against the darkness, the surrounding darkness. And that really is the theme that we're going to hit on today. Not Christmas lights, but light into darkness. And as I mentioned, we're going we're to be in Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah is this incredibly rich book. You have harsh passages of judgment juxtaposed with these incredible passages about God's gracious deliverance and goodness and kindness. Uh, and of course, these famous predictions, these really, really well-known predictions about the coming Messiah, what he would be like, uh, what, what his character would be like, how we could recognize him, uh, etc. So today's plan is we're going to try to understand this passage in its original context, what it may have meant to its original audience, but then we're going to trace this theme of light into darkness kind of throughout the New Testament a little bit and see what impact or what, what importance this has for us, okay? So let's uh, move on here. So we had some technical difficulties. I swear it must be me. Uh, I must have some kind of funky body chemistry or something because every time I try to bring my own technology, it goes wacky. So it happened this morning, and at the last minute, I emailed my PowerPoint to the back there, and we haven't had time to coordinate. So it, it might be a little clunky with me going, next slide, please, or something like that. So if you can look past that, 
I would be most grateful. So we're going to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and we need to give us a little bit of, of historical context for this to make sense. Right, so y'all remember the Garden of Eden. God created uh, mankind to rule in his place, right, to be in relationship with him, created them in his own image, to rule uh, and oversee his creation in his place. Of course, mankind rebelled and fell. But even as God is delivering uh, the curse, as it were, as he's revealing the consequences of their actions, he has this passage where he says in Genesis um, Genesis chapter 3, where he says, talks about the serpent, right? And of course, the serpent is Satan. He says to the woman, to Eve, your seed, your offspring, some way, some, some day down the line, someone of your offspring is going to crush his head, meaning he will be defeated and destroyed, right? So we have that, that thought planted there in Genesis chapter 3. Then some unknown amount of time passes and we get to Genesis chapter 12, and the Lord calls a man named Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this, this promise starts to take on a little bit more shape. It's going to be through this line of Abraham. And sure enough, Abraham becomes a family, and his family becomes a nation. And again, over hundreds and hundreds of years, this nation eventually becomes a kingdom. And the most famous king from that kingdom, of course, is King David. And the Lord made another promise, further clarified this promise to King David. And he said that one of your offspring, one of your line, is going to reign on this throne forever. He's going to establish this throne eternally. And uh, so this promise is further solidified, right? Further clarified. So we know it was going to be a human being <laughs> because it was from Eve. We know that it was going to be from Abraham, uh, so the Israelites. And then we know that, that it's going to be from, this guy's going to come from the line of King David. And we are to expect this king who will uh, uh, establish David's throne forever and reign in, in justice and righteousness. So I think that we would expect, given that setup, that the kings following King David would at the very least, fall in his footsteps, right? David was a flawed man, but, but if nothing else, he held that relationship between God and Israel, right? He kept the Lord first. Well, that does, that's not what happened, right? Solomon, the next king, uh, David's son, near the end of his life, started uh, embracing the pagan religions around him, started marrying every woman from every country he could find and, and bringing their gods into the temple, this is David's son. This didn't last very long at all. Uh, this does not look good for this kingly line, right? And then after David's son comes a guy named Rehoboam. Uh, after Solomon is Rehoboam. And in Rehoboam, the kingdom actually fractures and splits apart. And they grow in unrighteousness, not in righteousness. And things are going in the opposite direction uh, than what we were perhaps led to expect by this promised King David. And so... It, has got, it gets to the point where it's so bad as, as these generations continue that the Lord says, all right, I've given you guys so many chances. I need to purify my nation. I need to purify the sons of Abraham so that I can use them. Right? And so 
the means of his purification is going to be the country of Assyria, which is this big, bad country to the north. And Isaiah's job, Isaiah is, um, Isaiah is the, the prophet of God. It's his job to speak for the Lord. And he has to announce, it's his job to announce that in the coming years, Assyria is going to overwhelm Israel. Right, they're going to be invaded. Uh, he talks about like the river overflowing its banks, and that's what, what they can expect to happen. And that is going to be God's means of purifying the nation. He's going to let them experience the consequences of the choices that they've made over the previous uh, generations. Right. So uh, let's see. Let's jump here to our next slide, please. Where I'm going to start reading is actually the passage that directly precedes today's passage. So this is the very end of chapter 8 in Isaiah, if you're there. And in this passage, Isaiah announces to them, not only they're going to be, I mean, he just announced that they're going to be overwhelmed, but he also tells them what life is going to be like. Okay, so here's what he says. I will wait, this is Isaiah speaking, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him, he and his family. There are not going to be many who are still waiting on the Lord and hoping in him. And when they say to you, when other people say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, that is, pay attention to the word that you already have. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What is it about dawn? That dawn, When dawn comes, light comes, right? So he's saying there is no light already. This theme is becoming apparent. Uh, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry... They will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. Darkness is a very important theme in this passage, and light, obviously, is the counterpoint to that. So what is the nation, what's the nation of Israel doing? They're seeking mediums uh, and necromancers instead of prayer, instead of seeking the Lord, right? They've rejected God's word instead of, uh, instead of paying attention to what they already have, they're seeking these other sources of revelation. As I mentioned, no dawn, they're already darkened in their understanding and it's only going to get darker for them. They're going to be aimless, hungry, angry, and distressed. That's a great Christmas message, right? <laughs> we can all go home now and uplifted. So as I mentioned before, God is going to remove his hand of protection from this nation and allow them to experience the consequences of the choices they've made over this time, right? So again, let me draw your attention to the word darkness, all right? If we can go to the next one. I have... This is my definition of darkness, right? And I think, that, I think that I'm not off base here. I checked it with a couple of the guys, and they thought that I was pretty much uh, in line here. So darkness, as, as we see it in this passage, is a state of spiritual hopelessness, ignorance, and or wickedness that naturally results when God's creation lives independently of him. All right, I'll read it one more time. A state of spiritual hopelessness, ignorance, and or wickedness that naturally results when God's creation lives independently of him. But God is always merciful 
So even as God's people are about to be plunged into the state of darkness, right, we get today's passage. It follows right on the heels of what we just read. So let's take a look uh, at today's passage. So Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says, right on, right on the gloom and despair and agony on me, to quote that old famous song, um, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So let me, before we go on with the rest of the passage, let me give me a couple quick notes here so this makes sense, okay? We see words like Zebulun and Naphtali and kind of like, oh my gosh, what are we talking about here? Um, but first of all, Isaiah, one of, the, one of the, the challenging things about the book of Isaiah is his time frame shifts around a lot. So he goes from speaking to current present day issues to suddenly he's in the future talking about things that are going to happen. And this passage, he's, he's, his time frame is set in the future after all the things he's predicted have happened. So he's talking about future events as though they've already happened, okay? That's why this is in the past tense like this. Uh, a quick note about Zebulun and Naphtali. These are regions in the Promised Land, okay? Named after the tribes of Israel. Regions in the Promised Land up around the Sea of Galilee. So when you see the term Galilee, it's essentially synonymous with Zebulun and Naphtali, okay? And so we learn from this passage already that something good is gonna happen in Galilee. And Galilee was probably the first area to be overrun by the Assyrians because it's in the north. So they were humbled initially, held in contempt initially, but they can expect something great to happen, okay? So verse one I like to think of as like our thesis statement. There's gonna be no more gloom, something good's gonna happen. And then starting in verse two, Isaiah actually bursts into a poem, all right, a prophetic poem. So the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. I know it's bad news, isn't it? <laughs> but there's good news, there's good news. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then we continue on to verse three, and he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. A couple words about this passage. You have multiplied the nation, right? The light multiplies. The light increases. By clear implication, the darkness suffocates and shrinks, right? Uh, light brings joy. You have increased its joy. Light brings joy. Darkness brings sorrow, anger, depression. Light brings freedom and victory for the yoke of his burden you have broken as on the day of Midian, right? Freedom and victory, darkness brings oppression and slavery. A quick word about Midian. Midian is a reference to the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. If you know Gideon, he's famous for laying out this fleece, right? Well, Gideon's story here is that he, uh, they, were, they were facing an invasion by the Midianites, and the Lord took Gideon's army and made it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it was only 300 guys, and... Uh, 
and they defeated this Midianite army, right? So he did it so he could show his glory, show that their strength was not in their military might, but rather in God's miraculous intervention for them, and that God would receive the glory for that victory. Totally unexpected, miraculous victory, right? And so that's the reference here. Uh, You've broken their, their staff or broken their yoke as on the day of Midian. Incredibly unlikely, joyous, exultant victory. So darkness brings us oppression and slavery, but light brings us victory and freedom from our oppressors. And then finally we see there in verse five, right, that uh, light burns up the battle gear. Light brings an end to war, whereas the darkness is violent, okay? So our last couple verses, and things start to really become clear here. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here in verse 6 we learn that this light is a person. Ah, wait, maybe, maybe this should start ringing Uh, bells of memory, right? That promise in Genesis 3. And we learn that uh, he's going to be a ruler uh, uh, of some sort, a ruler, and not just any ruler, but the perfect ruler. And we learn that he's going to be incredibly wise, a wonderful counselor, right? A counselor is one who gives advice. This is how we proceed. So he's going to be called wonderful counselor because he's going to be exceedingly wise. He's going to be called mighty God, So we've already been told that he's going to be human, but here we're told that he's going to be divine. He's going to be God himself. I don't know if the Israelites had a framework for this, and I don't know, I can't imagine that I would have had a framework for this had I I been alive then. Excuse me. (coughs) Pardon me. Sorry. But he's going to be mighty God himself in this ruler. He's going to be a kind and caring and eternal father And then finally, his reign is going to bring about peace. So things are starting to become a little clearer, I think, as far as the nature of this guy who was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then we learn about his kingdom. His kingdom is going to continue to expand as spreading peace to all who are part of it. Uh, He will be the promised descendant of David. Hey, at long last, right, after, after this succession of unrighteous kings, we get a promise that at some point in the future, this is still coming. This man is still on his way. And he will finally come to establish David's throne forever. And he'll be everything that David's descendants have not been thus far. All right. Any guesses as to who we're talking about? Right? The Sunday school answer? Yes, we're talking about Jesus, right? We're in church in Texas on Sunday near Christmas. I think you're pretty safe guessing that we're talking about Jesus. And uh, so, of course, Jesus was the promised light in Israel's darkness. The gospel writers didn't want us to miss this, right? Clear messianic prophecy, and the gospel writers did not want us to miss this. So Matthew chapter 4 quotes the first two verses that we read uh, about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and the the darkness uh, seeing a great light. And where did Jesus' ministry start? 
it started in Galilee. And in fact, Matthew chapter 4 tells us that Jesus went to Galilee specifically to fulfill this prophecy. John chapter 1, we, we hear that, that Jesus was the light of men and the darkness could not overcome it. Right? The, it was very important to the gospel writers who wrote years and years and years later that we understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy, that Jesus was God's promised light. And in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, right? Clearly, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. These are clear references back to this so that no one could miss it. Now, so Jesus, as, I was, as I'm kind of alluding to here, completely fulfilled this prophecy, but he did it in a way that Israel didn't, didn't expect. As I mentioned, they probably didn't have a, a framework to fit in this idea of a God-man. They were expecting a military and political leader. But you remember the promise back in Genesis chapter 3 was that this seed, this offspring, this guy was going to crush Satan's head, right? That is what Jesus came to do. He fulfilled these promises, this prophecy, at least in his first advent, he fulfilled them in the spiritual realm, crushing Satan's head, disarming the powers and principalities of the world, okay? And we're going we're gonna to get into some of this a little bit more here in a second. And we can expect at his second coming, his second advent, that this will be fulfilled in a more physical way, as it were. But if we trace this light and dark motif into the New Testament, we're going to see that we actually have a part to play in the fulfillment of this prophecy, in the expanding of his kingdom. So if you think of us as spiritual Israel, right? So Paul talks about the true sons of Adam are those who believe, those who have faith as, not Adam, sorry, the true sons of Abraham, sorry, quoting a little bit of a, uh, Chronicles of Narnia there, uh, the true sons of Abraham are those who have faith as Abraham had faith. So we can think of, in one sense, the church as spiritual Israel, right? And we are now, uh, we now have the opportunity to help be part of, of fulfilling this coming of the light. So he, partiz- he, he invites us, uh, he invites us to participate in the increase of his government and of peace. Okay, so let's follow this thread as we go a little bit into the New Testament and see how this directly impacts us. Uh, Next slide, please. So, Jesus was the promised light of Israel. Israel in its darkness is trapped, and God, as God does throughout all of history, promises to shed light into that darkness. The promise has not changed, right? Jesus is the light in our personal darkness. Now, first things first, okay? Let's look at this this John chapter 12 um, passage. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, this sounds very nice, but we have to look at both sides of this. What Jesus is saying is, if you do not belong to Christ, you're living in darkness, 
Remember how we define darkness? It's that, that state of spiritual hopelessness or ignorance or wickedness or some combination of the three that is the natural result of living independently of God. So we know nice people who don't know the Lord, right? That, that they can be good folks. Jesus makes it clear that if they do not believe in him, if they have not uh, become a Jesus follower, we'll talk about that in just a second, that um, they are living in darkness. And chances are good that with a group this size, that there are those here who are still living in darkness. You may have been around the church your entire life. That is not what makes you a light liver, <laughs> someone who lives in the light, a Jesus follower. And that can change right now. As it changed for me in 1981, when I was not as young as I wish I were in 1981, but in 1981, I was a freshman in high school, and uh, there was this cool college guy who volunteered at the, um, at the youth group at the, I was invited to. It wasn't even my church. I really, we didn't go to church a whole lot. We kind of went to church Christmas and Easter every now and again, right? And so this kid in my neighborhood invited me to, to, to youth group with him. And these cool college kids, this is one of the reasons I love college kids so much, was volunteering and helping out. This guy's name was Jay Clemens. And he told me that God loved me and wanted a relationship with me, but that I was fallen and sinful and separated from him. And there was nothing that I could do to bridge that gap. No amount of, of trying, no amount of doing all the good things I could think of or stopping all the bad things I could think of, uh, I was unable. But that God, because of his great love, sent his son as a human being to die in my place and to take that penalty that I deserved and close that gap. And that by trusting that that was enough, in other words, by taking God at his word and trusting that Jesus' death in my place was enough, I, that, that, that gap could be bridged and I could be brought out of darkness and into light. I could be changed. And I, I'm pretty sure that was the first time I'd ever heard that message. And I was ready. Sign me up. I prayed to receive Christ that evening. And the trajectory of my life was instantly and completely changed forever. That same offer is available to you now, today. Uh, we're not going to do an altar call or anything like that, but if, if, if you want to talk more about this, come see me after the service. Find someone in a, in a blue Connect shirt. Talk to, to one of our elders or one of our staff or someone who was up on the stage, okay? Don't let, uh, don't let the day pass you by. But if we look at this second verse... From Ephesians chapter 5, it says, and I encourage you, this, this is not verses 8 through 14, right? It would be like one verse per word. But I encourage you to look at that entire passage. But just for the sake of time, I'm going to hit this briefly. Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So the clear implication here is that it's possible to be a Jesus follower. It's possible to have trusted Christ for your salvation, to be a child of light, and yet not to walk that way, to still walk independently of God and to still reap the, the harvest that comes from walking independently of God, right? To still live in darkness even though you belong to the light. And this darkness, I think, can take on all sorts of, of shapes and forms, addiction, 
chemical addiction, alcohol, pornography addiction, rampant uh, in our culture today, shopping addiction, uh, relationships that you shouldn't be involved in. Uh, but it can also take on more, shall we say, respectable forms, uh, bitterness, anger, self-righteousness, self-pity. Um, those are a little more, quote-unquote, acceptable, but just as dark, right? Remember that darkness enslaves, but light sets free. Darkness enslaves. Even if you belong to Jesus, even if you have accepted that what he did on the cross for you was enough, and yet you're living independently of him, you're being enslaved. And Christ wants to set you free. Again, those of us who are living in darkness, if you're living in darkness, he is there with the light, wants to bring you into the light. And so how do we do that? Without going into too much detail, I would encourage you to talk to somebody. Bring it into the light, whatever it is. Um, no matter how bad it seems, no matter how respectable it seems, bring it to the light. You can talk to me, you can talk to that same group of people. Talk to a friend, but bring it out into the open. Okay? Um, the power of that secret can be broken. The power of the darkness can be broken. That's the point of chapter 9. Of Isaiah, so I strongly encourage you to do that. Don't remain a slave, don't remain in the dark. So Jesus was the light in Israel's darkness, but Jesus is also the light in our personal darkness, but there's more. We are called to be light bearers into the world's darkness, right? We have received his light, but we don't just hold on to it for ourselves, we're not supposed to anyway, but rather we're supposed to take it into the world. How am I doing here on time? Okay. Uh, Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. That may be familiar. We've just finished our series on the Sermon on the Mount, right? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The way that we act, the way that we approach the world can actually cause people to see this light that has been placed within us by God's mercy and cause them to give glory to our Father in heaven, right? Uh, we have, we've heard about this morning, we heard about Glory Gang. That is a light-bringing ministry. Uh, we have uh, Embrace Grace, women here at our church who are ministering to single moms. That is a light-bringing ministry. We're beginning a relationship uh, with Reggae Elementary, another opportunity to bring light. Uh, we have care team. Um, so these are kind of official or, or, or organized ways through our church that we can be light bringers to a dark world. But you can serve a friend. You can um, honor Christ in the way you work. And that doesn't necessarily mean sharing the gospel at every, uh, every around the corner so that people are, you know, don't want to see you at the copying machine or something like that, but rather living with integrity in a dark world, uh, being one who builds up instead of tears down, being one who gets his work done when he's supposed to get done, being an employer that people want to work for. Um, these are all ways that we can be light in this dark world. But it also does involve 
the gospel. So let's look at this second passage. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, blinded, right, darkness, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, there it is again, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are called to have glow-in-the-dark hearts. Okay? Glow-in-the-dark hearts. That is, he has poured his love and his light into our hearts in such a way that if we are fully embracing that, fully surrendered to that, fully understanding of what it means to have that happen, our hearts should glow in such a way that the darkness is lit and it is seen, right? And of course, we proclaim not ourselves, but that it is Christ who has done this. We're not trying to be good people. We're simply responding to what the Lord has done for us. Uh, I often tell my, my voice students, I have to remind myself this, that performing is a reward, not a punishment, right? We, some of us as musicians, we're like, we do this out of this, this deep need that we have to be approved, and we can be terrified when we do it because we're so desperate to do a good job that, um, that we're terrified we're gonna screw up and everyone's gonna hate what we do and our lives are gonna be wrecked and ruined. <laughs> there you go, an insight into the mind of a performer. And, uh, but the reason we got into music in the first place is because we love music because we love to sing, because we have something to say, because the Lord has given this to us this desire. And so I often have to remind them and myself that performing is a reward, not a punishment. This was the, the object all along, the goal all along, right? In the same way, service. I think we can think of service as drudgery. Oh, I gotta make the donuts. I gotta do this because I'm a Christian, and I'm supposed to. But I think what this passage tells us, these passages tell us, is that service is a reward, not a punishment. It's an opportunity, not it shouldn't be a drudgery for us, okay? And if it is, well then, we need to examine our hearts. I need to examine my heart regularly because Lord knows I can slip into that very easily and bring things into the light. All right, our last point that'll be very, very brief is when Jesus returns, there will be no more darkness. So Jesus was the light, the promised light in Israel's darkness. Jesus is the light in our personal darkness. We are light bearers, right? Torch holders, candle holders, iPhone flashlight bearers, glow-in-the-dark heart people in the world's darkness. And then finally, our last point is that when Jesus returns, there will be no more darkness, Uh, I encourage you to look at Isaiah 60, Revelation 21. I'm not going to go into it now because that's actually going to be very much the basis of the final sermon in this series. Um, So, with that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you as the light. Your word tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
We thank you for your eternally standing offer, historically standing offer, presently standing offer to bring light into our darkness, to make it possible for us to not live independently of you, but to be brought into your family, to live in dependence upon you. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who is struggling with this, I pray that you will open their eyes, open their hearts to receive them. If there are those who are struggling in addiction or struggling with darkness who already know you, I pray that you will move their hearts to seek help, to speak to someone, to bring the darkness into the light. And my prayer is that Grace Bible Church would be known as a light-bearing body of people intent on sharing what you have done with us in a dark world that is sometimes hopeless, sometimes ignorant, sometimes even wicked. And we thank you that there will come a day when there will be no more darkness. And we'll see you face to face. May that day come soon, but in the meantime, may we be faithful light bearers. And we pray it in your son's name. Amen.